All right, friends, if you have your Bibles, please go ahead and open them with me now to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39. Two weeks ago, Sean welcomed us into this final section of Genesis and into the life story of Joseph. Uh, Joseph and his coat of many colors might be one of the most well-known stories in our Bibles. And like all the other stories in Genesis, it does not disappoint. It is filled with drama. It is filled with ugliness and difficulty and sorrow. But it is also filled with a lot of powerful and beautiful pictures of God's grace and mercy. It is a story of redemption. And we are going to continue to consider it together here in chapter 39. Please read along with me. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was in all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. After a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I, I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as the master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph 
and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Amen. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. The title for this morning's sermon is When the Lord is with you. When the Lord is with you. I, I don't know what type of person you are. I don't know whether you think of yourself as courageous and strong or as weak and timid. I, I don't know whether you think of yourself as purposeful and driven in life or as aimless and passive. I don't know whether you think of yourself as a victim before others or as someone who has had victory. I don't know how you view yourself, but I do know that all of us try to find strength by being connected to someone or something that is stronger than we are. Even the strongest people in the world try to find their strength and purpose in people or in groups or in circumstances or in belongings outside of themselves. This is why little kids argue about whose dad is strongest. It's because they're not yet strong, but, but they can find identity in their dad's strength. This is why teenagers will do anything to be connected to the popular group at school because they believe that that group can give them the strength and the confidence that they need. This is why even the most successful people love to name drop the other people that they know because it makes them feel more important. This is why many of us want and crave a, a social media following because it makes us feel more powerful and important. Friends, we do all of this because we rightly believe that who we are with can and will determine in part who we are. We rightly believe that being connected to those who are stronger than we are can, for better or worse, greatly affect the way that we are ourselves. And friends, while this is oftentimes a very sad demonstration of all of our insecurities, it is also a demonstration of a very real need within us. We are all, no matter how strong or successful we appear to be, we are all struggling with weakness and insecurity. We all feel the insufficiency in ourselves and we all long to find strength and purpose for our lives. The question is, where will we find this much needed strength and purpose? How can we experience peace and greater fruitfulness in our lives? Is it by always seeking after those who are more popular or powerful than we are? Or is there a better way? Well, church, there is absolutely a better way. And we see this in Genesis chapter 39 as it reveals to us the strength and the purpose and the peace that is available to those who don't endlessly try to find strength in their current circumstances or in their relationships, but who find their strength in being with the Lord. We all need strength, but none of us will find it except for those who are with the Lord. The main idea for our message this morning is this. When the Lord is with you, you will prosper 
you will be given power and you will experience peace. When the Lord is with you, you will prosper, you will be given power, and you will experience peace. And this morning, we have two points. Point number one, you will prosper despite adversity. And point number two, you will be given power over temptation. Let's begin with the first. Point number one, when the Lord is with you, you will prosper despite adversity. Genesis chapter 39 begins in verse 1 with a very serious reminder of how Joseph's circumstances really are in a very bad place. Look look at verse 1. It says, now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. That, That should stand out to us this morning. Because throughout the whole study of Genesis, Egypt has not been a good place to be, right? You remember this. In chapter 12, in chapter 15, in chapter 16, with Abraham and Sarah and with Hagar, we saw together that going down to Egypt was a big mistake. Egypt was not where God intended to prosper his people. His people were supposed to be up in Canaan. Egypt was not a good place to be. But now, here in chapter 39, we see that Joseph, Abraham's great-grandson, is brought forcefully down to Egypt. He he doesn't go willingly. No, he is brought down as a slave. It says that he was bought as a slave by the Ishmaelites, who then brought him down there. That, That word down, it seems to me, is both geographical and theological. So to speak of going down to Egypt is... Geographical, it's kind of like speaking of going down to Florida. Egypt was south of Canaan. But the way that the text speaks of it, it seems to be more than just geographical. It's repeated two times, and it seems to highlight the the negative decline that is happening in Joseph's life. His life seems to be going downward. He was thrown into a pit. And he's sold as a slave. And by the end of this chapter today, he's going to be wrongly accused. And then he's going to be thrown in prison. His life seems to be spiraling out of control. Friends, think about this. Think about what this must have been like. One day, probably just not long before, Joseph was the favored child of his father. He had been given a robe of many colors, which likely indicated privilege and likely indicated family authority over his brothers. He had been given dreams that seemed to be from God that spoke of his brothers ultimately bowing down to him. Listen, if you were to take Joseph of chapter 39 and if you were to take him out to Starbucks this afternoon and say, hey, Joseph, what do you think of your current circumstances in life? Without a doubt, he would say that things had not turned out the way that he had hoped. He didn't expect this. He didn't wish for this. He didn't want this. Being sold as a slave was not on Joseph's bucket list in life. It's not how it works. You know, when he was a little kid and his mother Rachel came up and said, Hey, little Joseph, what what do you want to be when you grow up? He did not say, Oh, mommy, I really hope I can be a slave in Egypt. That's really what I want to be. I can't wait to be all alone with no friends or family around. Mommy, if if, if I really do good, maybe I can even be thrown in prison. That's not what he said. That's not his desire. But, But here in chapter 39, his life is on this downward spiral. Friends, let me ask you a question. Has your life not turned out the way that you thought that it would? When you look at your career, 
But when you look at your marriage or your singleness or your financial situation or your reputation before others, does your life not look the way that you thought and dreamt that it would look 10 to 15 years ago? Teenagers, has high school not turned out the way that you thought that it would? Is it much harder than you anticipated? College students, is your first semester back a far cry from what you hoped that it would be this summer? Parents, does having kids feel like a nightmare compared to what you had dreamt about for all those years? Friends, th this is often the way that it is. Very, very few people have the life that they dreamt about. No, for most of us, our lives regularly feel like they are on this downward spiral. Our, our poor health continues to haunt us. We're never able to start the business that we dreamt about and talked about and hoped for for so long. Even more than that, maybe we've been attacked by others. People have slandered us, gossiped about us. People have ruined our reputation and made our lives so difficult. Listen, sadly, in this fallen and sin-sick world, very few of us have the life that we thought that we would have. And church, when that happens, when we deal with disappointment, isn't it tempting just to, just to give up and to lose all hope? If you were Joseph here, how would you respond would you just play the victim card? Kind of wallow in your self-pity, eat a gallon of ice cream day after day? Well, what would you do? That's probably what I would do. But friends, that is not what we see here. And, and this really is important for us to see together this morning. Look, look at verse 2 in your Bibles. It says, the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. Those words, the Lord was with Joseph. We see those same words again down in verse 23 after he's been thrown in prison. The Lord was with him. Those words, those words, the Lord was with Joseph. They are literally bookending both sides of this chapter. They are the focus of the story. They are the theological centerpiece of chapter 39. The Lord was with Joseph. That's the focus. And, and we also see the result of the Lord being with Joseph. If you look at verse 2 and verse 3 and 5 and 21, you're going to see words like succeed or success. You're going to see words like to be blessed and to find favor. Those are words of prosperity. Joseph is, is prospering even in the midst of his adversity. Friends, listen, there are honestly few people in our Bibles that suffer more than Joseph does and who are also shown to prosper or to succeed as much as he does. And it makes us want to ask the question this morning, doesn't it? How, Joseph? How can Joseph prosper in this adversity? How? Well, here is how. Church, these words are how the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with him. The foundation for his success, the, the strength of his prosperity was not the, the physical or material or situational position that he was in. No, the foundation of his prosperity was that the Lord, Yahweh, was with him. And friends, that's key, Yahweh. It gets even better because when we see the word Lord here, which we see eight times in this short chapter, when we see the word Lord, it is the name Yahweh. 
It is the name that God uses to describe himself as a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. And so it puts, it puts the focus not, not on the fact that as a young man, Joseph was just strong enough to remain near to the Lord. He didn't just keep going to church like he felt like he should. No, it puts the focus on the fact that the Lord, despite the downward cycle of Joseph's life, the Lord didn't go anywhere. Despite being a slave, despite being far from home and family, despite the fact that his life looked nothing like what he thought it would look like, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God was with him. Church, listen. Your current circumstances do not determine whether you are able to prosper in this life or not. You do not need your dream job to prosper. You don't need the perfect family to succeed. You don't need marriage. You don't need children or a 4.0 GPA. No, all that you need is the Lord, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. That's the way that it was with Joseph. It's very clear in this text that this wasn't just a, a vague spirituality on Joseph's part to help him think more positive thoughts. No. Joseph knew that God, the Lord, had made promises to his family. Joseph knew that those promises were to bless him, to prosper them. Joseph knew that God had said that he and his family would become a great and mighty nation. And so he allowed, Joseph allowed the, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of the Lord and his word to shape him in the midst of his trials. Even when the circumstances seem to go from bad to worse, it seems so clear that Joseph the whole time is clinging to the hope that he had in the Lord because the Lord never forsook him and he had confidence in him alone. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for us. Being with the Lord can cause you to prosper. It can cause you to have joy today. It can cause you to have strength and purpose no matter what your current circumstances are. You can still prosper in the Lord because you know that his word is true. That has been proven through the gospel. His word has been proven true through the cross. You know that his plan is perfect because of Jesus coming on your behalf. You know that even though you can't see the end of the story, he does and he's going to work it together for your good. You can have peace and hope and confidence even when you feel like your entire life is in the valley of the shadow of death. You can have peace and hope and, Christian, you can have purpose as well. Part of prospering according to God's word is being given a purpose. It's having a calling upon your life to have direction, to know where you are going as a Christian. The, the Lord doesn't always promise physical or financial prosperity to his people, but being with him often, it always gives purpose and direction, and it leads towards faithfulness and fruitfulness. That's what we see here in Joseph. Commentators agree that not only did the Lord's presence with Joseph give him strength to endure his trials, but it also gave him something to, to live for in the midst of his trials. He didn't wallow in his pity. He, he lived purposefully and with excellence before the Lord. So much so, in fact, that look at verse 3. Verse 3 says that his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed. Note that. 
Did, did Potiphar actually see the Lord with Joseph? No. But he saw the way that Joseph lived and the way that he worked despite his trials and circumstances. And it spoke of something far greater than Joseph himself. It was clear, even to an unbelieving Egyptian, that God was with him. Friends, I don't know what your current work environment is like. I know that for many of us, work is less than ideal. Some of us hate our jobs. Some of us can't stand our coworkers. Some of us are just waiting for the next opportunity to open up wherever you are. If you are flipping burgers or you're a CEO or if you're just one of thousands in your company, those who are with the Lord are able to live purposeful and fruitful lives in a way that can draw people's attention and that reflects God's presence to them. And according to God's wisdom, it oftentimes leads to faithfulness before the Lord that also leads to fruitfulness in this life. And so we rest in his promises and we work diligently for his glory. When the Lord is with you, you will prosper. Point number two, when the Lord is with you, you will be given power over temptation. Verse seven, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Joseph, who was, according to verse 6, handsome in form and appearance, apparently he was a good-looking dude, Joseph catches the eye of Potiphar's wife. She's drawn to him. She's attracted to him. She wants to have fun with him. She wants a sexual relationship with him. And so even as Joseph seems to be prospering in one area of life, suddenly there is an attack from the enemy in another area of his life. And friends, isn't that often the way that it is for us as Christians? If the devil can't make Joseph stop believing through his adversity, maybe he can undermine his faith through sexual temptation and sin. He's always on the prowl. He's always on the attack. And friends, we learn several things about sexual temptation from this text. Number one, sexual temptation is aggressive. You know, we can can imagine that Potiphar's wife said more than these things three simple words, lie with me. She might have said those exact words, but she very likely said more than that, particularly since verse 10 says that she made this plea day after day. But it seems like it is written in this way by Moses, very succinctly, those words, lie with me, to show the aggressive nature of sexual temptation. Temptation comes at us, doesn't it, church? It doesn't ask permission to speak in your life. Sexual temptation comes at you. It says, look at me, just like she said, lie with me. It says, click me, text me, lie with me. It's aggressive. Number two, sexual temptation is persistent. Look at verse 10. It says, and as she spoke to Joseph day after day. So this was not just a momentary temptation. No, this was persistent and ongoing. Just like sexual sin is constant and ongoing or sexual temptation is constant and ongoing for us. It's on the TV. It's on our phones. It's everywhere in our culture. Friends, can you you imagine? Can you imagine the strength of resolve that was required of young Joseph, probably 17 or 18 years old, to resist this woman's invitation on a daily basis? You know what? I think you can imagine because I think we all deal with it on a daily basis. The the attack of the enemy through sexual temptation is constantly all around us. It is persistent in our lives. Number three, 
Sexual temptation is crafty. In verse 10, it also says that, that he would not listen to her, listen to this, to lie beside her or to be with her. Commentators agree that that means that Potiphar's wife gave Joseph options. Oh, oh, you don't want to sleep with me. Oh, maybe we can just cuddle tonight. Maybe we can just spend some time together alone. Can we just hang out? Can, can I get your number so that we can text later on? No, sexual temptation is, is crafty. It's sneaky. If it can't take you down with that impulsive and spontaneous attack, it will play with you and try to get at you in some other way. Sexual temptation is so powerful, isn't it, church? It's aggressive, it is persistent, and it is crafty. And listen, church family, if we as Christians are going to resist sexual sin, which God's word says not only harms our bodies, but endangers our very souls, if we are going to resist sexual sin, we must have biblical convictions to stand on. When, when that picture pops up on your phone and it says, look at me, when the coworker or the classmate comes on to you at the party, when the married man at work starts flirting with you, what are you going to do? Well, church, if we are going to resist the danger of sexual sin and temptation, we must have convictions to stand on. And listen, we must have convictions about what is bad and about what is good. See, first, we need to have convictions about what is bad, and we can see that in Verse 9, Joseph ends his response to the advance of Potiphar's wife by saying, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He knew that to lie with this woman would be to sin against God. It would be evil. Now maybe you are sitting here today and you are asking yourself the question, why? Why is it evil? Why does God's word say that sex outside of the covenant of marriage is wrong? Well, because sexual sin distorts God's design for our lives. Friends, our, our sexuality is a gift from the Lord, but he has designed our sexuality to be expressed between one man and one woman within the covenant of marriage. And his design is actually very intentional, very good, and very beautiful. It is a picture of his love for his bride, the church, and the sacrifice that is involved in that. And so to distort our sexuality into something different, to practice it however we want or whenever we want, is to do great wickedness against God and against those who are made in God's image image and who deserve our respect and our honor and our love. But listen, we need to not only have convictions about what is bad, church, we must also have established biblical convictions about what is good. Look at verses 8 and 9 again. Jo Joseph does not say only, I can't do this great wickedness before God. No, in verse 8, he also speaks of the good that God was doing in his life and the holy calling that was upon his life. He speaks of the, the trust and the responsibility and the honor that had been given him by his master. And it, listen, it's this, this combination of having conviction about what is bad and about what is good, what we are called to. It's this combination that led to Joseph's godly response to sexual temptation. Look at verse 12. It says that she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. 
But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. He ran. He booked it. He did not say, oh, okay, let's sit down and talk about my convictions again, make sure we're on the same page. No, his convictions moved his feet. He turned and he left. But that wasn't just because he had convictions about the the wickedness of sexual sin. He also fled because he had convictions about the goodness of purity, the goodness of holiness, the goodness of honor before the Lord. See, sometimes I think that we view temptation in a wrong way. The, 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 the text of, that we're speaking today is often preached by many pastors in a way that just emphasizes the need to run away from sin. Sexual sin, bad, get away as fast as you can, follow in the footsteps of, Jake, of Joseph. But guess what? Running away is not enough. It's not enough to run away because the sin that we are running away from is actually also inside of us. Sexual temptation is a part of who each one of us are, and so we need to do more than just run away from sin. We need to run to the Lord. See, Jesus himself says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus says, not only should you get away because impurity is a distortion of my design, but you should get away. You should have a pure heart because your pursuit of purity in that you will see me. You will be with me. And that's exactly what I believe Joseph was doing in this moment. Again, the the theological emphasis of this text is that the Lord was with Joseph. And so as he runs away from Potiphar's wife in this moment, I think that it's safe to say that he's not just running away from her, but he is running to the Lord. He, He wants to continue to be with his God. He doesn't want sin to separate him from the Lord. And so he is running to God and and he is running towards who God has called him to be. Church, if we are going to effectively resist sexual sin, we must run towards the Lord together. We must fill our minds daily with who he is, and we must fill our minds daily with who he says that we are. This world, this sexualized culture that we live in would like us to think that you and I are no more than a bunch of sexualized animals who can't help but be controlled by our passions. And so guess what? You should give up and give in sooner rather than later. Just be happy. Our culture wants our our sexuality to be our greatest identity and the greatest expression of who we are. But friends, I have really good news for you this morning from God's word. I have news that should strengthen and bolster and encourage you this morning. You are more than just a man or woman with sexual desires. That is such a low view of who God has made us to be. You're not an animal. No, you are so much more than that before him. And I, I truly believe that strength to fight against our sexual temptation comes from not just focusing on the, on the wickedness of sin and on the shame of our many mistakes, but allowing God's word to re-envision us for who he has created us to be. We need well-thought-out biblical convictions, not just about what is bad, but about what is good. He wants us to see him. He wants us to be in fellowship with him. He wants us to live with honor and dignity and goodness in his very presence. You know, 
God's word describes itself as a mirror to look at. So the idea from James chapter 1 is that when we look into the word of God, we, we see a reflection of who we are. And oftentimes, when we think of God's word as a mirror and giving us a reflection of ourselves, I think we assume that it just shows us the areas that we need to fix. And so we open God's word and we look and we're like, oh man, my hair's a mess. Yep, I'm falling into sin in that area again. I need to change. Or we look into the mirror and we say, oh yeah, my shirt's wrinkled. Yep, I should probably iron out all of that sin in my life. And God's word certainly does that for us. But that's not all that God's word does. God's word is actually like a magical mirror. A mirror that does that, it's supposed to reveal our need to us, but it's a magical mirror that does not just show us our need for change. God's word is a magical mirror that shows us a magical reflection of who God says that we already are in his sight and who we are truly becoming by his grace. And so church, when we get up in the morning and we feel defeated and discouraged because of our many sins, we can open this book We can stand in front of the mirror and not just find the areas where we need to improve and grow, but we can look into it and know, oh, God has called me to greatness. God has called me to dignity and to beauty. He's called me not to give in to my own fleshly desires, but to live for him. Friend, do you know, do you know who God's created you to be? It's amazing. He's created you to be royalty itself, to be sons and daughters of the king, to be trophies of his grace, citizens of a heavenly kingdom, not enslaved to sexual temptation and sin. He created you to be free and strong and pure. God's word, it paints a picture of redeemed saints that is very different than the picture our own shame and weakness likes to paint about us. And that's good. That's really good because you know what? Shame is a horrible motivator towards change. Shame cannot ultimately change you. It might for a little while, but it won't last. Hope and trust in who God's word is can change you. And when it comes to to sexual sin and temptation, we need to not just have convictions about the bad and to feel the shame, we also need convictions for the good. Listen to this amazing quote from Ray Ortland in his new book entitled, The Death of Porn. He says, here is what I ask you to remember all along the way. Your battle against porn isn't about porn. It isn't about sex. It isn't about willpower. Your battle is about hope. It's about your heart believing that in spite of your many sins, like my many sins, God rejoices to give you a future you can scarcely even dream of. You'll win your fight by believing that God's love for you is too great to be limited to what you deserve. If you see yourself living under a grim law of crime and punishment with you always just getting the karma you deserve, your hope will die. Your despair will sink you down into resignation and from there you'll spiral down into porn and shame and then more porn and more shame and on and on. You know what I mean, he says. He says, but I am asking you to defy all despair because God gives his best to men and women who deserve his very worst. He says, I'm asking you to believe the Bible 
When your heart grabs onto that hope, porn's spell is broken and your freedom is dawning. So maybe you are a mess, but with Jesus, you're a messy winner because you're his mess. And so am I. And then he goes on to fill our minds with the shame-destroying, the temptation-defeating, the captive-liberating truth that we are royalty before King Jesus and that he has called us and those around us to something far greater than the shame that we feel on a daily basis. Church, may it be. Amen? May it be that we have biblical convictions to stand on, not just about what is bad, but about the purity and the holiness and the joyful obedience that God can enable to grow within us all. And the beautiful picture of, of honor and dignity that we can live with. Oh, to have a church family, not borne down by the shame of their sexual temptations, but who stand tall who stand strong, who stand joyfully together, aware that God is working a greater and greater dignity into our lives together. I can hardly get my mind around what a beautiful picture that would be. Just think about it with me. Dwell on that picture. Think about the joy. Think about the happiness. Think about the power and the peace that would be available to us as we find our identity and our daily calling more in the gospel, more in what he says about us than in our temptations and our failures and what they say about us. And listen, you might be so defeated by your sexual sin this morning. You might be so buried by shame that you can't believe a word that I'm saying. Does this sound too good to be true? Do you wonder how you could possibly be royalty before the Lord? How is that possible? Do you wonder how God could ever look at you and see anything but your sexual brokenness and shame? This whole message today is about what it means to be with the Lord. But maybe you don't even believe that you are with the Lord or that the Lord would ever want to be with you. But friends, this story is in our Bibles and you are hearing it proclaimed today because God wants you to hear his voice over you today and over your sin. He wants you to know that your circumstances and your sexual sin and shame are not who you are. See, Joseph is a pretty impressive guy. He, he is an example for us to follow in many ways, but Joseph is just a small reflection of someone else. Joseph is just a small picture of a far better Joseph, Jesus. And when we see in this story Joseph's integrity and his courage in the face of being wrongfully accused and attacked, we should quickly think of Jesus who was also wrongfully accused and attacked and mistreated. Jesus, God himself, who had always been with the Father, but who came into this world to be with you. Jesus, the, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God who wanted to be in relationship with you so badly but could not be in relationship with you because of your many sins, this Jesus, who could have heaped shame upon you rightly, he came. And instead, he bore that sin and shame on your behalf, 
on the cross, defeating it once and for all, thereby liberating you from that shameful identity. His work on the cross changes everything. It changes everything about who you are and how you view yourself. The cross is the ultimate picture of how committed God is to be with you this morning and through every day of your life. He so loved you that he gave his only son to die for you. And he did not die for you so that you could wallow in self-pity and shame to make your mistakes your greatest identity. No, he died for you so that you could view yourself as he views you. He died for you so that you could become the person that he created and called you to be. He died for you to make you a new creation, a son and daughter of the king. He died so that you would be with him forever. Ray Orland continues, he says, do you really think after the cross, your shame drives God away? Nope. Your shame is precisely where he can recreate you the most gloriously. You think you are disgusting to him? Wrong again. The worst things about you are where he loves you the most tenderly. God welcomes high-maintenance men and women who keep coming back to him for more mercy and more mercy and more mercy multiple times every day. He isn't tired, and he isn't tired of you. This is the glorious hope of the gospel. In verse 21, it says, Even in prison, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. The steadfast love that was in, with Joseph in that dark place is the steadfast love that would continue through every page of Scripture until we saw God himself in the face of Jesus Christ hanging on that cross to pay the penalty that you and I deserved. And because of the work that he has done for us, church, we are free and we can live holy and pure lives before him. We can be with him, not just for a day, but for all eternity.